Let's open up God's Word to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. We'll begin reading it in verse 10 to the end of the chapter in verse 22. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this evening, for every step you've established here tonight. And Lord, we look to you with anticipation for what through the ministry of your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be illuminated to understand, to know, to grow in greater conviction concerning your wisdom and the way in which your wisdom navigates our steps in every day of life. We do ask, Father, that as this last portion of Proverbs chapter 2 is attempted to be opened up. We trust the Holy Spirit to make your word run and be glorified tonight, unencumbered, unhindered, giving us all the ears to hear this word of truth, which we trust, Father, that by your word and spirit will conform us more and to the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whom dwells all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is in his name and for his sake we ask these things. Amen. We return to our ongoing study through the book of Proverbs, where tonight we are concluding our look at Proverbs chapter 2. The general theme of this chapter has been how God's wisdom is both a treasure and guardian to God's people. Fanning this theme out, we've seen thus far that God's wisdom is hard won and God given. This has covered the first nine verses of Proverbs chapter 2. Drawing this study to a close, our focus will now center on verses 10 through 22 where we will consider God's wisdom as a moral safeguard and thus how God's wisdom works for God's people. And we see this working of God's wisdom in the first place as that which delights the heart. It delights the heart. Reading verse 10, For wisdom will come into your heart in knowledge 
will be pleasant to your soul. The first thing we must take notice of in this verse is where God's wisdom goes and finds delight. It is in your heart. The heart, as we know and have heard many times, represents all that the man is at the core of his being. The fact that God's wisdom will enter our heart bespeaks the reality of a regenerated heart since the unbeliever, as Proverbs 1-7 makes very clear, takes no delight but only scorn for God's wisdom. This heart is therefore the new heart, or to put this in New Testament terms, it is the new creation. Hence to those born again or regenerated by God's Spirit, God's wisdom, God's knowledge, indeed God's Word is pleasant to their soul. By the term pleasant, we're being told that in the heart of God's people, his wisdom is both agreeable and delightful. By agreeable, the heart of God's people submit, conform, and obey the wisdom of God's word as the only right path there is to forge the only right kind of life for living in this fallen world. We think again, as I tend to return to Psalm chapter 1, I can't recall how many times I have returned to Psalm chapter 1, whether it's in expository readings of Psalms or in this series in Proverbs, but obviously one of my favorite Psalms for many reasons. But in Psalm chapter 1, again, listen to what it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law or the Torah, the instruction of the Lord. And on his instruction, he meditates day and night. Well, the question here in relation to this point we're making about God's wisdom being agreeable to the heart of his people is why, why is it that the godly man does not walk, does not conduct himself in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful? What keeps him from that path? Well, it is the instruction of the Lord. We would say the word of God, the holy scriptures, all scripture that is breathed out by God. And then, of course, we think of Psalm 119 and verse 105, another passage of scripture that I do quote a lot and return to for many good reasons, which says, your word, Lord, is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. So, to the heart of the regenerate, the wisdom of God's word is most agreeable. But not only that, it's also delightful. It is delightful. By delightful, God's wisdom captures and enthralls the affections of the heart, where his word is described as that which Psalm 19 verse 10 says, is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Let's think about what David is describing here in Psalm 19 in verse 10. First, he speaks in terms of the value of God's word. And then second, it's enjoyment. But the key term is the verb desired which is the Hebrew hamad, and is typically translated in the Old Testament as covet. Covet, to covet. Yet here, in Psalm 19, verse 10, the coveting is not sinful, but holy. Because the object of this lusting is none other than God's word. Commenting on this very text, Dale Ralph Davis said, there is a pure lust that ought to consume you, namely to possess Yahweh's word in all its truth in benefits. 
Needless to say, God's wisdom and thus the wisdom of his word is the sheer delight and exuberance of his people at the core of who they are by God's redeeming grace. A great illustration of this from church history is from the life of William Tyndale. Having labored with his life to give England God's word in their native tongue, Tyndale, as we know, was hunted down and eventually captured to be executed for this precious gift which the church and the state viewed as a crime deserving capital punishment. Incarcerated for a whole year a little north of Brussels in Belgium, Tyndale braced himself for a hard winter as he awaited his execution. In a letter he penned to the governor of the prison, Tyndale expressed what were his final wishes for his final days remaining in this world. And note what he said. I entreat your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here during the winter, you will, requ- you will request the attorney to be kind enough to send me from my goods, which he has in his possession, a warmer cap, for I suffer extremely from cold in the head, a warmer coat also, for that which I have is very thin, also a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. I wish also his permission to have a lamp in the evening, for it is wearisome to sit alone in the dark. But above all, I entreat and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the attorney that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible. Note the pathos in Tyndale's request. A warmer cap, a warmer coat, a lamp at night, but he says, above all, above all, my Hebrew Bible. Now, let me add an important footnote to this. Do you know why William Tyndale even in these, his last days, even knowing that he would be executed? Do you know why he requested his Hebrew Bible? It is because Tyndale had already succeeded in translating the entire New Testament in English. And he had begun translating the Old Testament from the Hebrew into English. Tyndale was not done. Tyndale was not finished with his work. And there he was sitting in that prison. And all he could think of most, most of all, most of all, supremely, was the work must go on. The work must go on. I must have my Hebrew Bible. October 6, 1536, William Tyndale was strangled and burned to death. For what? For translating the Bible into English. Wow. But note this. The holy lust that burned in his heart for God's word was even greater than any desire for the preservation of his own life, and that to the very end, to the very end of his life quite Literally. Beloved, that's a great example for all of us as God's people to see how the delight, the the, the delight for the word of God, the delight for the wisdom of God's word should be so consuming in the heart of God. Of God's people. Even to the very, very end. Well, such is the delight of God's word. And thereby God's wisdom to the heart of the redeemed. But not only 
Does God's wisdom work to delight the heart? But we notice, secondly, from our text in Proverbs chapter 2, that it works also to protect the heart. It works to protect the heart. In verses 11 and 12, we're told that God's wisdom will watch over you, guard you, and deliver you. To be more specific, it's the, it's the discretion of God's wisdom that will watch over us, combined with the understanding of His wisdom that will guard us, which works itself out by delivering us from the ways of evil men and women. Specifically, God's wisdom watches, guards, and delivers His people from men of perverted speech and from the forbidden woman with her smooth talk. Let's look at these each in turn. First of all, notice God's wisdom watches, guards, and delivers His people from men of perverted speech. By perverted speech, we must understand this as language which turns everything upside down or overthrows that which is God's standard for right and wrong. This is qualified by what we're told these men do. That is how they live. In verses 13 through 15, we see them forsaking the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. They are full of exuberance in doing evil, delighting in its perverseness. They follow a path which is uneven and departs from what God has set as the standard of righteousness. But the lure, the lure they use to draw in new converts to their ungodly abandon is their perverted speech. Let me just pause here and remind you of what the book of Proverbs teaches us in one of its more pithy statements in Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs 18 and verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So, Obviously, in the tongue of these wicked men is the power of death. It's the power of death. For their speech, Solomon tells us, is perverted. We've seen this already by way of example in Proverbs chapter 1, 11 through 14, where such wicked men seek to entice would-be disciples with the thrill and coolness of what it would be like to take advantage of other people by plundering them and robbing them of their goods. They promise excitement and riches which they can all share in together. This is their perverted speech. But God's wisdom works to protect us from such evil men. How so? By reminding us that whatever a man sows, that he'll also reap. That though there are many ways that seem right to a man, yet its end is always death. And despite how enticing the charm of such sinners may be, the trap, however they set for others, will be their own demise. In other words, as Proverbs teaches us, the pit they dig for others to fall into will be the very pit they themselves tumble into. Second of all, not only does God's wisdom watch, guard, and deliver his people from the perverted speech of wicked men, but notice it also does so from the forbidden woman with her smooth talk. This passage in verses 16 through 19 is the first introduction to the deadly coaxing of the immoral, sexually unrestrained woman which will be the main subject in Proverbs chapters 5 through 7. And for that matter, don't know how many of you knew this, but the subject of some 65 verses throughout Proverbs, more than any other figure mentioned and warned against in this entire book. 
It is significant that such a woman is described as forbidden. Forbidden. The word itself carries the meaning of stranger or alien, and thereby pointing to the fact that such a woman is entirely outside the circle of a man's proper relations. The way in which Proverbs presents her overall is someone who is a lustful apostate to the godly community and an unrestrained wife who betrays her faithful husband. But what's even more critical to see in this is that the unfaithful wife's sexual infidelity against her godly husband functions as a paradigm for spiritual infidelity against the Lord. As Bruce Walkie notes by way of example, Professor Walkie said, Solomon's sexual infidelity contributed to his spiritual infidelity. This is what 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8 reports. As it says how King Solomon loved many foreign women, who when Solomon was old, they turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Now note this, Solomon did not fully or formally renounce the Lord, but As the scripture says in 1 Kings 11, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. That is, in addition to the Lord, he loved his multiple wives as much, if not more, and met God's anger in judgment for it. Brothers and sisters, understand. You see, what Solomon compromised... And it wasn't a compromise that took place or happened just overnight. No. No, no, no. This was a slow, steady, subtle compromise that took place over many, many years. But what was Solomon compromising? Of all things, he was compromising the very first commandment in the moral law. You shall have no other gods before me. Another rendering of that command, which is more true to the Hebrew, you shall have no other gods in addition to me. And that is exactly what you see in the example of King Solomon. No, he did not formally renounce the Lord. He did not become what we might could say or call an outright apostate. But as the scripture says, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. And in the next verse there in 1 Kings eleven four, in the following verse in verse 5, it says, if my memory serves me correctly, that Solomon was unlike his father David. In this regard, in this respect. So how ironic it is that here in Proverbs chapter 2, 16 through 19, it is Solomon. It is Solomon warning his sons against the infidelity of an immoral woman. Clearly this is Solomon in his Younger years. This is in the early years. But it reminds us of what our Lord Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verses 2 and 3. These are rather chilling words and should be for any pastor. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They preach and do not practice. That's why the Lord Jesus in that same chapter gave the scribes and Pharisees a sevenfold 
That is a perfect sounding judgment. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrites. What we have then in Proverbs chapter 2, 16 through 19, is a warning of divine origin breathed in Solomon by the Holy Spirit. It is the truth of God, therefore, that must be heeded, despite the fact that Solomon himself would eventually depart and not follow this wisdom from the Lord. As to the warning given here, there are two things to note briefly. First, like the wicked men in verse 12, the forbidden woman weaponizes her words as the trap for her unassuming dupes. Her words are described as smooth. Notice, her words are smooth, not perverted, smooth which always carries the connotation of deceptive. Like in Psalm 55, verse 21, where an enemy's speech is smooth as butter while war rages in his heart. The deception here in Proverbs 2.16 is via flattery. And empty promises, as demonstrated more concretely in Proverbs 7, verses 13 through 21. And I want you to turn there. Proverbs chapter 7. Verses 13 through 21. This entire chapter is devoted to what we're being warned against here in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16 through 19. But this is what the immoral, unrestrained wife says to her would-be convert. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I paid my vows. Oh, that's scary. She's religious. So now I have come out to meet you. In other words, she's saying, I'm clean. I'm okay. I'm good. I went to church today. I went to church today. I did, I, I did my religious thing. To seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him at full moon. He will come home. I don't know about you, but every time that I read that passage, I cringe. That's a frightening passage. That's a scary passage. You see how smooth her words are? Smooth as butter. The way she's flattering him. The way she's coaxing his ego. I've been seeking for you. I found you. You're the only one in my sights. Oh, yeah, I'm married, but that's okay. I've been, I've been to church. I got clean. I paid my vows. I'm good. Let's go spend the night together. And, of course, as Solomon tells us, verse 21 of that chapter, 
with much seductive speech. She persuades him with her smooth talk. There it is. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. And how does he follow her? As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Scary. And it should be. It should be. Well, going back to our text in Proverbs 2, secondly, we see here the consequence in falling to such sexual infidelity, which... We were just reading about there in Proverbs chapter 7, but here in chapter 2, it is that her house sinks down to death, her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. What's the point stressed here so graphically? It is that by the engagement and practice of sexual immorality of any kind, by either gender, it will bring nothing but ruin, destruction, dishonor, and judgment from the Lord. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 just says very bluntly, God will judge adulterers and fornicators. But here in Proverbs... Because what we're looking at, remember, in the context here in chapter 2, we're looking at how God's wisdom works to protect us, okay? The moral safeguard of God's wisdom at work, okay? Protecting our hearts. And here in Proverbs chapter 6, I want you to see this. Look at what Proverbs chapter 6 says about adultery. All right, let's just start at verse 25 and we'll... And we'll read to the end of the chapter. Proverbs 6, verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Just pause there. What does that remind you of? Do not desire her her beauty in your heart. What does our Lord Jesus, what does he teach us? What does he Revealed to us in Matthew chapter 5 about the sin of adultery. Where does the sin of adultery begin? In the heart. And our Lord says regarding adultery, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What our Lord Jesus was echoing was what we read here in Proverbs 6.25. In other words, Jesus was not teaching anything new, okay? You know, this is not a new law. No, our Lord was expounding the moral law. And he was getting at the fact that the scribes and Pharisees building their whole entire teaching on what was called the tradition of the elders, they came to believe that the sin of adultery is purely and only the physical act, the physical sexual act of adultery. But our Lord, our Lord is making it very clear, no. Adultery is not committed only in the physical act. Adultery begins in the heart. It's committed in the heart. It proceeds from the heart. And so Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Solomon tells his sons, do not desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. 
For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman. Okay, now he's making a distinction here between the prostitute and the married woman. But a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. But notice what he says about the one who commits adultery. Verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. In other words, he is stupid. Okay? Just very bluntly, frankly, he's stupid. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor. And then note this, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Let me just pause here and give you one example in modern history of this point right here. Bill Clinton. 1998, the great sexual scandal, scandal with Monica Lewinsky. Bill Clinton will never live that down. Never. Never. His disgrace will never be wiped away. Never. Because you see, that's part of the divine consequences of adultery. Your disgrace will not be wiped away. And so no matter, no matter where Bill Clinton goes and how many times that the mainstream media interview him, no one can look at him and not recall. What about that girl? Monica Lewinsky. And of course, well, Monica Lewinsky, she wasn't innocent. Her disgrace will never be wiped away either. Hmm. Verses 34 and 35, for jealousy makes a man furious. It's talking about the husband. And he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Danger, danger, danger. The pleasure that sexual sin gives is real. It's real. We would be very foolish to say it wasn't. But it is also fleeting. It is fleeting. And the consequences one reaps from it far outweigh the momentary stimulation it offers. Hence, God's wisdom says to his people, quoting now from 1 Corinthians 6.18, bluntly flee from sexual immorality. Run for your life. Flee from it. Well, how, how then does God's wisdom work in his people as seen here in Proverbs 2, 10 through 22? Okay, what have we seen so far? Well, it works first by delighting the heart. And then second, by protecting the heart of God's redeemed. But in the final consideration, we also see that God's wisdom works by preserving the heart. By preserving the heart. Proverbs chapter 2, looking at verses 20 through 22. 
So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. These last three verses in Proverbs chapter 2 could be classified as spelling out in poetic language the great gospel doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. As the people of God were given assurance and certainty that we will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous since the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. The confidence with which these words express is not self-confidence, but God-confidence. It is an unwavering security in the fact that God will keep his people to the very end. But the proof of such divine keeping is a way of life that is good and abiding to the paths of the righteous. In other words, the fact... God preserves us to the end is seen and demonstrated by a life that perseveres in God's wisdom which maps out and navigates our course in a pathway of faithful obedience to the Lord. In other words, this is not once saved, always saved. That's not... That's not what this doctrine is. And you are familiar, I know, because the majority of you are good Baptists, and if you certainly, and if you have your background in the Southern Baptist Church, then you have heard that, especially those of us who are in our midlife and grew up in the SBC. That was a favorite doctrine. In fact, that is the most orthodox uh, doctrine in SBC life and context. Once saved, always saved. But the problem with that doctrine, a doctrine that also goes by the name of eternal security, is that it says and teaches that once you are saved, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter how you live. Now, that, of course, may not be stated that bluntly, but I do recall a book by a very, very well-known SBC pastor many, many years ago, a book he wrote entitled Eternal Security. And in that book, he stated that once you have accepted Jesus into your heart, you're saved forever, don't doubt it, and not only that, but even if you become an atheist, you're still going to heaven. Yeah. This Southern Baptist pastor was even the president of the SBC in the 1980s. Very well-known man. But what terrible, terrible teaching. Indeed, not just terrible. That is absolutely false doctrine. And it is soul-damning doctrine. Soul-damning. Here in our text, we're told God's people will inhabit the land and remain in it. I want you to underscore that term land. The term land is not referring to a piece of real estate in Palestine. In the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, it is an emblem of life. An emblem of life. And with this understanding, it makes better sense as to the contrast given in verse 22 regarding the wicked as cut off 
from the land and rooted out of it. What awaits the wicked, in verse 22, is the judgment of God, which will cut them off and root them out of any hope for eternal life as they're in. Now, their end will be eternal destruction, eternal damnation. Whereas God's people will inhabit life eternal and thereby remain in the land. In short, we will persevere because we are preserved by God's sustaining grace and wisdom. What a high note. Proverbs chapter 2 leaves us with. And again, note the stark contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Or we would say the saved and the unsaved. Or the elect and the non-elect. The Christian, the non-Christian. It is a stark and terrifying contrast. Terrifying, of course, for the wicked. Because, and here I go again, Proverbs chapter 1. In Proverbs chapter 1, we see this contrast. Verses 3 through 6. He, he referring to the godly man, the godly woman, the saint who delights in the law of the Lord, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now just pause there for one moment. And this has to be very quickly. On the great day, when all the righteous enter eternity, enter, when we enter into glory, in the congregation of the righteous for eternity, It will not be a mixed congregation. It will not be tares and wheat like it is today. Today there are sinners in the midst of the congregation of the righteous, that is, on this side of glory. But in the day that's coming, in the new heavens and in the new earth, and the glory that Jesus is bringing with him when he returns for his people, sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. And then note how Psalm chapter 1 closes, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God knows our way because by his grace, by his redemption, by his power, he has made the way that we, his people, will walk, that we will pursue. No matter how many times we stumble out of the way, yet... Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. If we belong to him, we will return. We will come back and continue in the pursuit and continue in the way, the way that the Lord knows because it's the way the Lord has established for his people. And it is a way, it is the way to life eternal But the way of the wicked will perish. The contrast is stark. But the contrast is real. And we just need to be certain 
that we are in the way of the righteous. That we are in that good path. And the only way we can be is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we we thank you for the certainty. We thank you for the assurance of your redeeming, sustaining grace that keeps us as your people all the days of our life, preserving us, your mercy, your goodness, tracking our every step. We thank you, Father, that we only persevere because you preserve us to that end. And therefore, as you remind us clearly from your word, there is nothing we can do without you. We cannot bear the fruit that glorifies your name apart from you. And so, Lord, as we have been given sweet assurance tonight from your holy word in Proverbs chapter 2, as to the way of the righteous, as to the good path that you have called us to. We pray, Father, that with every fiber of our, of our being, by the power of your grace, may we pursue hard and strong that good path the way of your wisdom, your wisdom that does indeed delight our new hearts and protects our hearts and thus preserves our hearts. But Father, too, we hold before your throne of grace tonight those those who may be in our very midst here this evening that are not in that good way that are not in the path of the righteous, those, Lord, that have yet to be born again. And we humbly and earnestly ask, Father, in their behalf that you would have saving mercy upon them, that you will call them out of darkness, call them out of the path of the wicked that is a path of perishing. Bring them, we pray, Father, the true saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all these holy things before your throne of grace in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So.